We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone from Taijong by equally regular commentator Donovan Smith. It's great to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing US-Taiwan trade issues and possible future deals. Former legislative speaker Wang Jingping leading a KMT delegation to China to attend the Strait Forum in Xiamen, the KMT's annual national congress, ending with an unchanged China policy, but a rather controversial suggestion. Commonwealth Magazine Magazine's annual local leadership rating survey proving to be a rather bad news for the mayor of Taipei and a Czech t-shirt store discussing a partnership with a Taiwanese company to produce, well, some rather special t-shirts. But we'll begin with some rather disturbing yet possibly predictable coronavirus-related news this week. And while most folks here have been applauding the government's handling of the pandemic and happily been following coronavirus prevention guidelines in an above-the-board manner, well, shall we say some less-than-stellar people have been using it to make a fast buck by peddling counterfeit face masks or claiming that face masks made in China are in fact from Taiwan, or that's what they're claiming anyway. Anyway, they've been found out and the government has now taken steps to stop this and the Central Epidemic Command Centre says all surgical face masks made in Taiwan must bear the imprints MD, denoting medical and made in Taiwan logos by the end of this month or basically from next week. Now the importation of surgical face masks will also require government approval from next week and importers of both medical and non-medical grade face masks will have to log on to an online system every Monday to report their distribution status. Now, the move is part of the government's face mask import permit application system. All sounds very robotic, but that's what it sounds like because it's on a computer. Anyway, that's being introduced after it was discovered that between 70 and 80 million non-medical grade masks were imported from China in August alone. Now, sadly, two of the original 54 companies on the national face mask team of private sector manufacturers, who, which were requisitioned by the government to produce face masks, have been caught importing and distributing falsely labelled face masks. So, Donovan, I mean, probably we could have predicted that some smart bugger was going to do this. Yeah, I think we, we, we definitely could. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's partly predictable, but to a certain degree, it's actually really kind of a good sign. You know, years ago, Taiwan was famous for being the the you know the the nation and that was famous worldwide for copying things, and now it, it, it now made in Taiwan is now a sign of quality. So there's now outrage when somebody tries to copy Taiwan products. And the other thing that that jumped out at me doing the Central Taiwan News, of course, is that uh, both of the major violators here were in Zhanghua County. And Brian, one of those violators made great hay to the media and then suddenly three days later said, whoops, I did it, I'm sorry. That's right. And that's usually the case, I think, with these companies. And I think that it's uh, quite interesting because this is a continual pattern with Taiwanese companies that they will try to pass off products as higher quality than they are, but actually they're cutting costs and trying to deceive the consumer. Um, one sees this, for example, with food adulteration scandals or building construction using uh, substandard materials and that kind of thing. And so this is the face max version of it. And so it doesn't surprise me in this way, but I think it is reassuring that there has been a response from the government to ensure that there is more uh, assurances that masks are genuine. Um, 
and as as Donovan said, it is actually the case that now made in Taiwan products, there's a sense of pride. Um, I think part of the response is, is just not only because of uh, consumer safety and uh, concerns that this will affect the public, but also because Taiwan has been exporting uh, medical masks and other supplies. And this is something that countries want now because Taiwan is seen as having fought off the coronavirus in a successful way. And medical masks and other protective equipment produced by Taiwan are seen as ha having a high quality compared to substandard Chinese goods. But do you think this is possibly dent that, Brian? Course, it could. It in could. America, of course, they've been making great stories about how America's been cheering Taiwan-made masks, and this happens, and all of a sudden there's lots of Taiwan-made masks piling up because nobody wants to wear them. That's right, and so that does require concerted action by the government because uh, the Tsai administration has been engaging in quote-unquote mask diplomacy, uh, sending masks, sending surplus medical supplies such as masks to other countries as a way to build stronger relations with them. Uh, particularly, this was important at a point in which countries around the world were lacking medical masks, and so Taiwan was really stepping in to fill that need. But if there is actually then concern that the uh, supply chain is being kind of, uh, uh, there, are, there are Chinese products mixed in with Taiwanese products, then that could actually dent that image. And so I think the Tsai administration is really trying to act quickly. Um, it's interesting, though, too, how this points to larger issues regarding distinctions between Taiwan and China. For example, uh, China Airlines, part of the reason why their proposals have changed the name is because the medical mass donations going to other countries then are thought to be from China. But in this case, then perhaps there are actually Chinese goods mixed in with Taiwanese medical masks being sent to other countries. And Donovan, of course, none of these cases have yet to go to court, but do you think they'll be handled quickly or do you think they'll be dragged out like so many court cases are in Taiwan? Well, I mean, obviously it's hard to say at this point, but I, I suspect they're going to move pretty quickly on this because it is embarrassing. Um, and the political repercussions are going to be high, and they really want to set, I think they're going to, they're going to really want to make sure that this is something that the message is sent clearly. So I'm assuming that the prosecutor is going to move qu as quickly as possible. However, of course, defense lawyers may be able to drag it out, and we'll have to see. That's right. And I think uh, the outrage of the public will actually benefit the side administration. The fact the public is upset about this issue, and this is something that concerns them. And so the, actually, I think that will make it very difficult for the companies to defend themselves. Um, then this raises questions regarding the so-called national team. What is the vetting process for companies joining that? So it does raise larger implications. Um, and But I think that probably the KMT will just kind of leverage this as being poor misman uh, mismanagement by the side administration, that the, the side administration is actually just being very careless about these prevention. And that's kind of a narrative the KMT has tried to build up, in addition to claiming that the, the side administration has taken measures that have gone too far in hurting the economy and that kind of thing. Yeah, one was uh, in Yunling. I think the other one was in, I think it was Huatan. I'm not, 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 not sure. Um, but it, it's, for some reason, Zhanghua seems to be the epicenter of a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, Zhanghua and Taichung are the epicenter of illegal factories. And so it's, it's, it's always disappointing to me to see this. And of course, Brian, one of these companies, they, they stamped on their boxes, these were made by 3D printers. And of course, the prosecutors <laughs> went to the factory and they couldn't find a 3D printer. That was a bit of a giveaway. That's right. Um, it'd be kind of amazing if uh, masks are being produced in 3D printers. I mean, that would maybe be a technology that would be very useful. People could be producing masks in their homes if they have 3D printers anywhere in the world. But I think that in this case, it was just another a bizarre attempt to claim that something is high tech and, and uh, high quality, but hoping the consumer doesn't actually pay too much attention to what exactly the 
these fancy terms on the mask mean. But of course they did, because apparently over 2 million of these counterfeit masks have now been returned. That's right. And this is also another interesting measure taken by the government, that they are allowing for uh, masks to be returned, that to be substituted with, with better masks. And the government is still offering the kind of deal in which you can buy a certain amount of masks per time period, despite the fact that masks are now readily available. And so I think the government, this, this kind of intervention, this large-scale intervention, shows that they are taking it very seriously. And this is an issue that they do want to resolve, if it doesn't mean incurring costs themselves. Anyway, moving on from the coronavirus issue and the dodgy face masks, there's been a flurry of news in recent weeks concerning Taiwan-US trade deals. And on Thursday of this week, it was reported that US Undersecretary of State Keith Cratch will travel to Taipei next week to host the US-Taiwan Economic and Commercial Dialogue. Anyway, I spoke with American Chamber of Commerce in Taipei President Leo Seawald about the possibilities of a Taiwan-US trade deal and what type of agreement it could be. Good evening, Leo. Good evening. How are you? Okay. So, of course, on Wednesday of this week, the American Chamber of Commerce in Taipei and the Taipei-based Chinese National Association of Industry signed a joint statement calling for Taiwan and the US to begin negotiations for signing a bilateral trade agreement. But, of course, there's also been calls for a free trade agreement. So how do you see the bilateral trade agreement and a possible free trade agreement playing out with supporters from the, of an agreement? Well, first of all, I should say that we were very happy to uh, to work with the Chinese National Association of Industry and Commerce on this kind of initiative. For the past 10 years, our white paper has always been advocating as one of its key points, Taiwan, to enter into a bilateral uh, trade agreement with the United States. We view it as such an important part uh, of building strong relationships between Taiwan and the United States. And, and for our members in particular, uh, it's a tremendous advantage to to have them develop their businesses in Taiwan. And the other thing I should say before I go to the question is, you know, next week we're going to be celebrating our 69th anniversary in Taiwan. And I can tell you, after 69 years here, what is good for Taiwan is good for our members. So really, when we're advocating this type of position, we're advocating it because we think that it will help booster bolster Taiwan's economic situation and provide stability to its people. And because of that, we, we, our members, and, and we feel that this is something very good for Taiwan. Um, in terms of the difference between the two talks, the TIFA and the BTA, you know, the, the BTA, the Bilateral uh, Trade and Investment Framework Agreement, kind of sets up the structure of how to get to a free trade agreement. And, and typically, it's kind of a stepping stone. And, and I'm glad that the discussion has focused on the main course rather than the TIFA talks, the TIFA talks being kind of like the appetizer, the way to get there. And we really, uh, in the end, hope that we can achieve a bilateral free trade agreement, which is really the end game. So if we can skip those talks and get right to a bilateral free trade agreement, we think that that, that would be the best way to do it. If that doesn't happen, then we'll, we'll, we'll just take it step by step. But and the American Chamber of Commerce is very supportive of the end goal, which is the free trade agreement. Right. And of course, ractopamine reared its ugly head many years ago, and it sort of got subdued sometime last week when the government said it was going to let in US pork to Taiwan. But of course, there's been some pushback against that. Yes. I mean, this issue has been political for both sides, whether it's DPP or the KMT. And I, I think that it's an important issue to be resolved by the Taiwanese government. 
uh, definitely has to be held, uh, handled carefully. Uh, there are consumer concerns about it. Uh, there are also uh, the poor farmers are concerned about it. But when you look forward, the most important thing is that Taiwan can begin talks on a, on a free trade agreement with the United States. So uh, we hope that this can be resolved as, as quickly and, and smoothly as possible for the concerned parties. And we believe that the Taiwanese government is taking those concerns very seriously. I mean, do you see such an agreement being signed in the near or distant future? Uh, we are very hopeful. And we're doing everything we can to, to advocate for that. So you mentioned the, uh, the agreement we signed yesterday, the MOU we stand with, signed with the uh, Chinese National Association of Industry and Commerce. That's one example. We have also uh, signed into a free trade agreement business coalition, uh, and that is a group of American uh, interests who are also working to lobby the U.S. government and the USTR to push ahead with a, a bilateral trade agreement. Right. And of course, if it, if it takes several years, and of course Donald Trump and the Republicans are no longer in office in Washington, do you think this could possibly be stymie the signing of an FTA or a BTA? Well, the obvious answer is we, we hope not. Uh, but if you ask us for our opinion, we don't, we don't think so. Um, the support for this type of agreement, we believe, is, is uh, bipartisan. So whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, we believe there's strong interest in Washington to continue this, this trend of uh, negotiating a, a trade agreement with, with Taiwan. Right, of course, now we've got to talk about the elephant in the room, that being China. I mean, do you think that a Taiwan-U.S. trade deal could hinder U.S.-China trade talks? We don't hope so, and we don't think so. If you look at the context of it, we're just talking about creating closer ties between Taiwan and the United States in terms of uh, helping trade out. So irrespective of China, it's, it's good for the people here in Taiwan. It doesn't, you know, it, it shouldn't really make a politi political statement to that extent. We are really looking at it more from the economic stability it provides Taiwan. I mean, do you think Washington could be forced to possibly not call it a BTA, but make up another name for it just to avoid the China issue of China getting annoyed by it being actually called a bilateral trade agreement? I, I don't think the name is the key thing. I think that China is very sensitive of, of anything that happens in Taiwan, and, and uh, they, you know, they, they want to make sure that, <laughs> that no one is violating what they see as uh, you know, uh, their interests here. But I think, and our hope is that we'd like to just focus on the economic benefits of, of the agreement, no matter what it's called. And, and, and in the worst case, if it's called something different, it doesn't matter. The most important thing is that it creates the, the relationships and reduces the, the tariffs and, and makes the business uh, environment more favorable between Taiwan and the United States. That was me in conversation with American Chamber of Commerce in Taipei President Leo Seawald. And former Legislative Speaker Wang Jingping will be jetting off to China later this week at the head of a KMT delegation to the annual Strait Forum in Xiamen. Now in its 12th year, the forum is, according to Wikipedia, the largest non-political platform which promotes grassroots interaction, economic and trade exchanges and cultural integration between the two sides of the Taiwan Strait. Now, although some people may possibly disagree with the use of the words non-political in that Wikipedia entry, the event is scheduled to begin on September the 19th, and along with a KMT 
AMT delegation. There's also been reports that members of the new party and the People First Party could also be attending the event. Now the KMT says it chose Wang Jinping to head the delegation due to his wealth of political experience and his understanding of the situations both here in Taiwan and in China. Now the Mainland Affairs Council is warning that Beijing has long used the forum to drum up support for its one country, two systems formula and it's said that the KMT delegation should not sign any agreements with their Chinese counterparts during the event. However, defending its decision to attend the forum, the KMT said the trip is for a crucial part of cross-strait exchanges as official dialogue between the two sides has been suspended since President Tsai Ing-wen assumed office in 2016. So, Brian, obviously the KMT was going to send someone, but it picked Wang Jinping, which, of course, was interesting because, of course, it could have gone the other way, shall we say. That's true, and uh, they didn't send, for example, Ma Ying-jeou, despite Ma Ying-jeou being so prominent in the party these days. Um, it's interesting to pick Wang Jinping because he's sort of been out of the spotlight for a while. He was president in the last of elections and campaigned with people, um, but then and also just in the past few years, one has seen people that he has sort of groomed for offices backed, including Han Guoyu, the Kaohsiung mayor and former KMT presidential candidate, sort of like overtake him actually in the spotlight. It seemed like in the past uh, he was actually angling to possibly be the presidential candidate of the KMT, but then eventually that did not work out and he just sort of faded from the limelight for a while. So now he, he, here he is now in the public uh, limelight again, and it's by conducting a visit to China. Um, it could be that because he is perceived as being the leader of the uh, more pro-localization or pro-Taiwan faction of the KMT historically, this is the reason for sending him over, that this will make the uh, conducting this kind of cross-strait exchange more amenable to the Taiwanese public. And I think that that is probably the logic. Um, although I think that also this has limits because he has actually just been around the KMT forever, and the public might not actually be so uh, forgiving, actually, of the KMT for conducting this at all. I mean, I think that just conducting at this time and doing such a large exchange does actually have a, a potential to have a backlash against the party. At the same time, the KMT will claim that is the party, the only party in Taiwan that can conduct relations with the CCP, and that's why it should be allowed political power, as it historically has always done. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, there's a lot of speculation right now in the press that basically this is a middle finger to mind, Joe. Um, it, they, his, the choice of Wang Jinping is very interesting because, of course, Wang Jinping is, in a lot of quarters, he's most famous for... Uh, during the Sunflower Flower Movement, which, of course, was in part uh, a protest against Chinese influence in Taiwan, uh, he refused to use violence or do lift a finger to remove them from the legislature when he was, of course, the the speaker of the legislature, the president of the legislative UN. And so the perception of Wang Jinping, I think, in China is not a good one. And, of course, Ma Ying-jeou recently basically beat the stuffing out of the KMT chairman, Johnny Chang, over restoring the 92 consensus, of course, Johnny Chang, during, as part of his reforms, knowing that it's widely unpopular with the Taiwanese public and helps make the KMT unelectable on a national scale. He wanted to drop the 1992 consensus, but... Of course, Mind Joe kind of rode to the rescue of the 92 consensus, and there was an internal party poll held which said that 82% of party members supported the 92 consensus, and there was no way that they were going to be able to get this through the party congress, so he backed down. So there, there's, there's been a lot of speculation in the local media that the choice of Wang Jinping has, at least in part, it's a political move against Ma Ying-jeou, a political message against Ma Ying-jeou. Now, whether it is or not, I don't know. 
it, it does seem to be that, of course, with Johnny Chang being of the red, fa- the Taichung Red faction, he's a factional Paul, and of course, Wang Jinping is considered kind of the king of the factions. So there's a connection between them there. And having lost the battle over the 92 consensus, this may be a way that he is trying to also kind of, Johnny Chang is trying to send a message. I'm still there for a more of a pro-localization, a pro-Taiwanese approach to KMT relations with China. So there, there could be that as well. It is actually an unusual choice because, uh, as you mentioned, there is this tension historically between Mang Xiao and Wang Jingping, and this has not been forgotten. But also, Wang Jingping has always been accused within the KMT of being possibly a turncoat, a second Li Donghui. They always, they always say that about anyone. But just, just someone that secretly stays within the party, but is actually in support of independence and just causes their views and just stays there forever, and then eventually betrays the party. And so this has been the historical fear of the party. And regarding the, the kind of that he is the, seen as the, uh, in the past, he was seen as the leader of the kind of pro localization faction. This is why these accusations were made against him. In the past few years, a lot of the youth reformers that called for change within the party were accused of being basically Wang Jinping's disciples, having become similarly in that way infected by pan-green ideology. It is also generally known that Wang Jinping is friendly with DPP politicians as well. Um, and so the, it's actually interesting, too, because just in terms of Johnny Chang's uh, calls for reform within the party, starting from when he was elected chair of the party in March up until now, where Wang Jinping fits in is a kind of actually opaque. Um, where does he stand at this uh, in terms of the people he has loyalty of, who he's connected to, and so forth? He's actually kind of been a little out of the limelight. And so, I mean, these kind of efforts to reform have stalled under Johnny Chang. But then uh, where, where has Wang Jinping been during this entire time? And so maybe now he's being introduced into the equation as a move by Chang. And I think the results of that will have to be seen. Well, of course, Donovan, apparently Wang Jinping could meet Wang Yang, one of China's four vice premiers, while he's in Xiamen for a bit of a tete-a-tete. Yeah, this, will, this is going to be very interesting to see because uh, in the past, of course, generally, generally speaking, I, when Taiwan sends people over there, either the KMT or uh, a KMT-led government, they usually send over people whose families emigrated over here from, in 1949. So sending uh, Wang Jinping, who is very Taiwanese, um, you know, family's been here for hundreds of years, is very interesting choice, and I'm very curious to see how China responds to his to hi, to him arriving too, because they're probably going to be a little nervous about well, what is this guy up to. So, I, and what message is Johnny Chang sending by this? I, we don't know for sure, but there's a lot of there's basically by taking Wang Jinping. There's a, a huge, it's set in motion a huge amount of speculation. So, the Manchurian candidate, Brian. Ah, oh, that's right. They could, they could send Jing Futong. That'd be, that'd be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. He, he's working on, on, on uh, uh, inheriting the uh, National Palace Museum treasures right now, I think. We'll get there later. Ah, uh, yes. Get there later. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials.
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the KMT failed to surprise anyone this past Sunday when Party Chairman Johnny Jung announced at this National Party Congress that while the KMT will be continuing to adhere to its long-held policy of making the 1992 consensus the basis of its China policy. Jung told delegates at the Congress that the consensus was formulated based on the Republic of China Constitution and as such the KMT will continue to abide by it as a guideline for all cross-strait exchanges. And shortly after that he said that the KMT National Congress passed a resolution reiterating its adherence to the said consensus, which it stated that has successfully promoted cross-strait exchanges and should continue to be used for that purpose. Now, the KMT also reiterated its opposition to Taiwan independence and also to Beijing's one country, two systems formula. And it also called on Beijing to renounce the use of force against Taiwan during the Congress. So the 1992 consensus there, Brian, obviously some people probably thought that Johnny Jung was going to go, let's conform this a bit and but he didn't they just stuck with it that's right they did and uh, as we talked about before the break this does seem to reflect that chang is meeting resistance within the party about his efforts at reform because he did propose dropping it or replacing it with something new there's even some chatter beforehand about creating something the ECFA consensus just touting the ECFA as passed under Mingtio as the base for a new consensus i think that does actually point to the fact that the consensus now uh, the 99 new consensus is close to 30 years old there's a need for something new regardless of how you look at it but just the 1992 consensus is viewed as too pro-china uh, just people within the party such as Mingtio will never abandon it because they see it as an achievement and also that and if they actually do change from it, the party traditionalists within the party, who are now a growing voice, uh, have been much more active in criticizing efforts at reform in the past few years, um, will view this as a betrayal of the party principles, because it has become one of those things that is enshrined within party traditionalism now, um, rather than just kind of a top stopgap measure as, the, as it was originally. Um, and in this respect, adopting the, the ROC as the basic common denominator of the KMT is also kind of interesting. Uh, the KMT has actually kind of articulated their notion of identity this way. Uh, it is it is one of those things that the KMT does perceive the 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 RC as under attack that the institutions of the RC are being denigrated by the administration and so now it is actually rallying trying to rally around the sense of identity um, but then regarding the whole notion of one country two system this is also interesting because the KMT has really been trying very hard to distinguish the 1992 consensus from one country two systems um, just saying that they are actually not the same thing that one country two system is bad and that you can see the disastrous at Hong Kong and they will never accept this but that the 1992 consensus is something different and that this is being uh, this is being mischaracterized by the DPP as being the same thing I don't know how successful that will be but the KMT is still trying to do that yeah I mean this is it's really quite striking because as I mentioned earlier the Johnny Chang quite clearly has a has an idea of how to reform the KMT in such a way that it it will move the party to being electable the the KMT has had two massive blows in national elections back to back and uh, polls have shown that, for example, the 1992 consensus is one of the major reasons. It's widely unpopular, and China has never accepted the, uh, you know, the KMT version of it, uh, which now they've added tied the constitution to it. But is uh, there's one China, and you know, each country, you know, yeah. You know, two interpretations, and of course, the Chinese side has never accepted the, the the two interpretation side. They've only accepted the one China part. So the public here has seen right through this, and it has not, and is, is deeply unpopular. 
Uh, but Johnny Chang, trying to get through these reforms and trying to move the party back to the center of the mainstream of public opinion, has failed to do so because the membership of the KMT is deeply conservative and deeply tied to the traditions of the KMT. And and people like Mind Joe and other heavyweights in the party successfully campaigned to keep it there. So Johnny Chang is kind of stuck, and this is keeping the KMT from being an electable entity on the national level. It doesn't impact them very much on local elections. So they may do well in 2022, or they may not. But in 2024, it's going to be a huge weight around their neck, unless they can get rid of it. And of course, Brian speaking at the National Party Congress, Mind Joe actually said something which could, of course, cause some problems because it's young people in the KMT have been calling for the 1992 consensus to be scrapped. But mind Joe Turrena said, while many younger Taiwanese do not understand the consensus... Um, that's right. And so there's another claim that the, the KMT is increasingly adopting, that the DPP is, again, mischaracterizing the Nigerian consensus, trying to convince people that it is something different from what it actually is. And so this always raises questions of what exactly the 1992 consensus is, uh, that the, the Chinese and the ROC, or the PRC and the ROC versions differ, and that kind of thing. But the public is not always aware of this, and this is what Ma is trying to leverage on. Um, this is actually particularly interesting, because the, the way the party congress went is that there was a show of intergenerational unity. The past party chairs, ranging from Hong Xiuqiu, Wu Juani, Eric uh, all appear together on stage with Johnny Chang as a show that they are all a united front. And obviously, there are actually a lot of tensions between this, between an extreme traditional such as Hong Xiuzhu and someone like Johnny Chang that was calling for reform. But this is kind of what the, the KMT tried to present here. And then uh, when Mai Tio claims this, then it actually, it actually reflects tensions, but there's the attempt now to show by Chang to act as though he is, on, uh, he is actually siding with the previous chairs of the party, because I think he is meeting such backlash within the party. Yeah, I think also what's worth noting is Johnny Chang, as he noted, uh, speaking about intergenerational change and youth in the party, is as Johnny Chang noted when he was running for chair, something like 3% of party members are under the age of 40. So there really isn't much of a generational change. Johnny Chang, by party standards, he's, what, 49, I think he is. And so he's considered by by KMT standards a spring chicken. Anyway, along with talking about the 1992 consensus, one delegate at the National Congress of the KMT, that being a Chen Li Shu from Tainan, stood on the podium last Sunday and said the National Palace Museum belongs to the KMT. All the artefacts there within belong to the party, and as such, ticket revenue from the National Palace Museum should go to the KMT. Brian? <laughs> it was a missing session because it ends, it suggests that the belongings of ROC state are that of the KMT. And so this suggests symmetry between the ROC and the KMT. And so when the KMT is claiming something like that the ROC is the basic fundamental bedrock of the party and its identity, it is claiming that, well, the KMT is the nation. And so then this has been criticized as reflecting an authoritarian mindset that the KMT has not advanced beyond uh, this party state mentality and, and a worldview. Um, but it's also been lambasted because it is just something that would cause backlash and, and from the public that this is this museum uh, is then considered a party asset of the KMT. Um, and so this has led to criticism from DP politicians such as Su Chen Chong, the, uh, also the illicit party uh, assets uh, committee uh, from the, the Taiwan State Building Party, Chen Boi, uh, pointing to that 
perhaps a rightful inheritor could be Ding Putong, who is supposedly descended from the last Qing emperor, um, uh, Henry Pui, who is part of the KMT and who has been a, a prominent politician with the KMT. I mean, it would be interesting if then it becomes not the property of the KMT, but one politician within the KMT. Yeah, I, I think a lot of this. Is, I thought Chen Bowie's comments were really quite amusing, <laughs> um, I, and of course, you know that he would he would call for the National Palace Museum treasures. Uh, that maybe they should go to Jim Putong, who of course was Mind Joe's close confidant. It was I found that really quite amusing. Um, and Brian's right. There, there, there's a lot of uh, the people who think this way. It, it seems to be, uh, or who think that the these assets belong to the KMT. It, it goes back to when Taiwan was, of course, a party, a one-party state, and of course the KMT could be conflated with the the national government itself. Um, but the obviously the National Palace Museum treasures. You'll notice Johnny Chang very quickly came out. Was as soon as he was asked about it, he just simply said, "It's just one person's opinion." So Johnny Chang quite quite clearly understood that this was a non-starter. Anyway, it was that time of year once again this week when Commonwealth Magazine published its annual ratings survey for the heads of all of the island's municipalities, cities and counties. Well, nearly. It didn't do Kaohsiung for obvious reasons because they've only just got a new mayor. Anyway, this year saw Taipei Mayor Kerwin Jiu dropping to the bottom of the list with a score of 49.5 out of 100. And although Kerr told the magazine last year when he came second to bottom that he didn't care about his poor showing and he had all the confidence in the world that his approval rating would rebound well he was strangely quietly silent over the matter this year after he dropped to the bottom now Ping Dong magistrate Pan Mun An scored 79.1 in the annual survey to take the top spot for the second year in a row while new Taipei city mayor Ho Yui posted the second highest approval rating of 78.6 Tao Yuan mayor Zhang Wen San rose one place to third Shinzu mayor Lin Jian placed fourth and Lianjiang county magistrate Liu Tsung Ying was fifth in the latest survey but a of course, Donovan, it wasn't such good news for most of central Taiwan's elected leaders. No, uh, central Taiwan leaders basically got the stuffing kicked out of them. And now, uh, the good news for Lucio Yen is that she jumped from ranking second to the bottom at 21st, uh, although in this survey there was only 21, uh, but as you mentioned, the Gaucho mayor was out. She jumped up all the way to fourth from the bottom at 18th. Uh, now, Wang Huimei jumped uh, from 19th to 19th, so she was <laughs> didn't really move anywhere. And unfortunately for uh, and Lin Min-san in Nanto, he at one point was ranked four, fourth in the country, and he's dropped all the way down now to 14th. So, and overall, the KMT, which has the vast majority of local government heads after the wave in 2018, where they swept local government heads, they basically dominate the lower end of the charts outside of the uh, the Taiwan People's Party, which of course came in dead last with Coenza and Taipei. In the top, in the the DPP only has six out of the 21 uh, local government heads rated here, and. Of those six, five are in the top ten, split with a KMT. And they're the only DPP one out of the top ten happened to be number 11th. Now, the thing about the 
the the thing I think that the DP the KMT needs to find concerning is outside of Hoyoe, most of the uh, in New Taipei City, most of their top performers were in places that are pretty small, Lianjiang, uh, Hualien, places like that. They don't have Taitong. They're, they're not exactly major population centers. Where they are represented in major population centers, again, outside of New Taipei, the places like Taichung, Zhanghua, uh, Shinju County, where there's significant populations where the where these politicians could use their local government status as something of a platform to move forward, they all ranked terribly. Um, yeah, and so it's quite interesting actually then to see who is doing well. Hoyoi is uh, doing quite well in New Taipei City. Some polls, apart from this, actually have him as the most popular politician in Taiwan currently. Uh, New Taipei is one of the strongholds of the KMT. But as been, has been noted, Ho has been keeping distance from the KMT uh, from the last set of elections and onward in refusing to campaign as actively for KMT candidates and focusing more on uh, claiming that he has focused more on mayoral duties. Uh, the interpretation provided by the Commonwealth magazine itself during the survey is that the leaders that did well were individuals that did not focus on national-level politics. Interpreted, for example, the backlash against Ko Wen-Chu and the Taiwan People's Party as because that he has not been attentive to Taipei, that he's been instead running around uh, trying to build up for future electoral runs, building up this new party, uh, possibly angling for a future presidential run, instead of focusing on the day-to-day matters of running Taipei. And this is, this is one interpretation. That, that's what the uh, claim of this then is that the people that did well, such as such as the uh, in Pingdong and, and other places, are because they did not actually focus on national-level politics. They instead focused on just keeping the people around them happy. Uh, I mean, one notes that there is backlash, for example, against Han Guo-ri for taking so much time off to run for president, taking three months off to do that, abandoning his duties in that sense. Um, it's also interesting then to look at who are the kind of local leaders currently and how this will bode for the next set of, for example, presidential elections. As in secondly, that Taoran uh, Mayor Zheng Wen-san could be a presidential uh, candidate in the future. And he did well in this poll, but this has been interpreted as, uh, at least by this article, in, as Commonwealth interpreted themselves, as because of the fact that he has not really been f- angling for the presidential run yet, that he has not been focused on national level politics yet, but more just local matters. I think Donovan Bryan can have a point there because, of course, Hoyoi does stick to New Taipei, but of course, your mayor in Taichung, she has a habit of attempting to take on the central government. Yes, uh, and that, that's a, that, that's an important point. And yes, Commonwealth really kind of drove this home in their analysis. The um, that, that's absolutely true. You have Hoyoi has a reputation for, and I think actually a record of, uh, working closely with the central government, which of course is DPP run, and you know having a good relationship with cabinet ministers like Lin Jialong, and he is working. He's created a reputation, and in a lot of ways, it looks like very well deserved for working very hard on behalf of the citizens of New Taipei City to to get things done. In other words, he's not concentrated on and actively goes out of his way to, for example, buck his own party in a lot of cases on national political issues, instead hoping to keep a good relationship with the central government and a good, and to keep his focus on the ball, which is the citizens of New Taipei City. Meanwhile, Liu Xiaoyan is frequently, basically, when one big major focus of her administration has been, it's the central government's fault. 
whether it's over pollution, over budgets, it, it's been a constant running battle with the central government. Uh, so she does not have a good relationship with the central government because generally the tone has been in Taichung, it's the central government's fault. So whether, you know, for example, it comes all the way down to the Taichung, the old Taichung City Hall, the Japanese era one. She's going back and forth in a major battle there over the Taichung power plant. It's a major war with the central government, and it just is ongoing. It's this constant war with the central government as a major theme of her administration. So I, I think that a lot of people in Taichung feel like, well, that that doesn't necessarily mean, unlike, for example, Han Guoyu, she's not as hated, say, as Han Guoyu was, or Ke Wenzhe focusing on his new party, but she isn't being, she's not, and she is working on behalf of Taichung citizens. So she's not hated in in the sense that Kowenza and Hanguoyu were, but she's not terribly popular because while she does have her eye on the ball of trying to serve her citizens, she's not doing it in a way that's very constructive. Which Hoyoi has been very constructive, doing everything he can to get things done and cooperate with everybody from any party. He doesn't care. Whereas Lu Xiuyan has just been at war. Anyway, we'll leave the war in central Taiwan with the central government and we'll talk about our final topic today, which is a delegation of Czech officials. Now, they may have left Taiwan following last week's visit, but their memories are living on as a Czech T-shirt store is now discussing a partnership with a Taiwanese company to produce... Well, T-shirts, but these are no ordinary and generic T-shirts, however, as the Czech company says it's been overwhelmed with interest for T-shirts emblazoned with the words, I am Taiwanese in Czech. Now, according to the company, the move comes after it was overwhelmed with those orders for the product following Czech Senate President Milos Vistrasil's speech in the legislative chamber here in Taipei last week, in which he said in Mandarin, I am Taiwanese. So, Brian, there we go. The, the delegation of 89 people came over to drum up trade and there's trade already in some offbeat t-shirts that's right although i'm also very amused by the fact this company said that they originally probably cannot do business with taiwan because of the fact that it's a prohibitively expensive for a small company to ship taiwan and b because it's very difficult to transfer money internationally from taiwan and that's just the case particularly with online shopping or doing business internationally and then later on taiwanese companies said that they would step in and work with this company which i wonder if that'll work out but it, it's kind of an unusual story i mean this is one of those things that taiwanese internet users will jump onto something uh, uh, particularly because of national sentiment or, or feelings of patriotism, and this, then it inflates some product, however random that can be in this case. And so this is one example. I just kind of wonder, uh, for example, will we be seeing Chinese counterfeits that are cheaper and not actually, you know, for example, check? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right, not actually check. And this will be this will be this will be quite of uh, quite amusing actually. But it's one of those things actually. When you do have these T-shirts and slogans become popular, you do start seeing counterfeits actually all the time, and there is no way to trademark a phrase such as "I am Taiwanese." You know, one, one of the funny things, this is one of the few cases where I actually think that it would be difficult to see a Chinese knockoff because <laughs> it had, sure. I am Taiwanese in Czech and Han Yu Pinin. And of course, in China, they can read Han Yu Pinin, which Taiwanese can't. So there, in considering the political sensitivities in China, I, I'm thinking that a factory owner in China is going to be thinking, they're going to look at, well, Taiwan in Han Yu Pinin, 
And I think they're going to look at that and go, yeah, maybe not. But will you be buying one, Brian? Uh, probably not. I mean, it. it uh, I don't know. I don't want to go through the charge shifting. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if you get a t-shirt in Czech, would it say I'm Taiwanese, or would you get something else put on there? I'm if you had to in Czech, I mean, I don't know if Taiwanese will start saying that I'm Czech. I mean, maybe this will be another one of those things we start seeing in night markets as, as very bizarre t-shirts. I am Czech. And Donovan, will you be rushing out to buy a I am Taiwanese in Czech t-shirt? Well, as soon as as soon as we finish this show, I'm going to be prowling the night markets to try and find my 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 misspelled "I am Czech" T-shirt. Anyway, we'll let Donovan go now to the night market to buy his knockoff T-shirt. Oh no, don't buy a knockoff one; buy a proper one, though. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan this week. This week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. All right, great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on your favourite podcast app or server where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.